gentlemen, welcome to the human energy field. Once again, as always, I'm your host, Henry, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Jamie. This episode, um, I want to start off by issuing a brief apology for the lack of episode uh, last month. Um, just to various scheduling conflicts, I lost my voice. It was just one of those things we didn't manage to get an episode put together in time to stick to our schedule. But thank you for being here with us today. We had a lot of great questions on the Instagram. A lot of great questions. So I want to say thank you to everyone for sending in your queries. As always, we're kind of sport for choice about what to pick and what to what to go for, um, which is probably the best problem to have. Um, and in the end, Jamie, what sort of line of what sort of line of conversation are we going to be starting ourselves off on for this episode? It is really tough, isn't it? And as you say, it's a good problem to have. We had loads of different suggestions about various games and topics and things like that. But I think um, a few of them stood out to us, and a few of them were actually repeated by um, different people. So. Uh, people were asking us our kind of favorite games and um and i think without quite often you know we like to spend some time talking about a specific game and i thought it might be fun to do like a little you know top five favorite favorite games and the way that you do that you know top five favorite movies top five favorite shows albums whatever you know nothing too set in stone no order but i just think it maybe will dredge up some games that we haven't talked about or some games that we'd forgotten we enjoyed so much and you know it'd be a good a good topic for discussion and i think it'd be a really good thing that we could then take over to the discord and then ask other people to kind of present their top fives and i think that would be a good like community thing because uh, there's loads of good chat going on down there and, and i think that would that could get some some good conversation buzzing in the discord as well so i think maybe start it here and carry it over there brilliant i like it i like your plan top five you know it's it's kind of uh, deceptively difficult i think especially with something uh, so complex like rpgs you can say oh top five that's easy and then you actually try and mm. start thinking about what it's going to be and realize that hang on this is this is this is not as easy as i thought it might have been so uh yeah i'm sure there'll, there'll be some good conversation to come out of that on the discord so if you're not already part of our human energy field discord please do get yourself down there you can find the invite I've tried to spread it around um, everywhere you listen to the podcast as well. So, for example, if you're not on Instagram, if you're listening to us on YouTube, if you're listening to us on Spotify, uh, I've tried to put the invite to the Discord link in the bio there. So hopefully you can uh, still access it and still find your way through to us um, where you can reach both myself and Jamie directly in the Discord, as well as a host of other fine people from all over the world who are um, a part of what we're doing here, which is just really great. So, again, guys, thank you. Thank you all. I actually had a just had a really good chat on the Discord uh, about an hour before we sat down to record, uh, which is definitely going to be something I'm going to talk about maybe later in the episode um, or next episode because I had some really good chats. But it was kind of a Warhammer-related thing, so I think we'll save that towards the end. Cool. Yep. As always, stay tuned until the end of the episode where we will uh, chat a bit about whatever Warhammer stuff we've got going on. Um, I also have a little bit of an announcement that I'd like to make, um, so do stay tuned. Towards the end of the episode, um, we'll talk a bit, a little bit about that. Uh, but for now, let's get started. Do you want to do a? Um, do you want to take it in turns? Do you want to just unleash your top five all at once, like an alpha strike? How do you want to do it? Alpha strike, love it. I think what we, the best thing to do with something like this is let's set our parameters. You know, let let's define the uh, the the structure of the game, so to speak. Uh, and I think what we're looking for um, to kind of codify it, maybe because it's quite a wide question, isn't it? And it could mm-hmm. it could mean all sorts. So let's let's just say top five. Um, RPGs in general, so we're just talking about a game, not a specific book or anything, just a game line, um, the core book, for instance. Um, five 
that if you had to like take one box of books to a new place or you know be stranded on a desert island with only five books in your in your player group which are the five books that you think you couldn't do without which are your top five favorite and i think that any genre you know new or old that doesn't matter and it doesn't have to be um you know in order but the which five books would you take um and i think that's where we should go with it so you're assuming that each book in this five are going to have mechanics and a game engine as opposed to being a kind of world book or source book well, or something we're looking at core books are we? well i guess i get maybe that's your choice but i was thinking core books because unless you think a game is so good that you could take a source book instead of the core book but then i'd like to discuss why you wouldn't take the core book so yeah fuck it man throw ah. in source books too that's fine like all right okay we'll see where this goes yeah. then yeah okay okay um I'm just picturing um, that Led Zeppelin tune from Top of the Pops 2. That's been, <laughs> been playing, playing in the background. Yeah. Let me drop a bomb for the, for the first Come one on, because this is, this is the easiest uh, answer for me whenever someone says favourite setting or favourite yeah. RPG um, or favourite whatever. This is, this is, I don't know the other four, but I know this one. Do you know what I mean? Um, by a gentleman by the name of James Vale, a game called Zas Irkala. Nice. This game um, came out a few years ago. I'm just trying to check written the year in the front. 2018, this game came out. And James Vale, he was quite um, active on Instagram and promoting not only the core book, Zas Ikala, and also the... Um, he did a bunch of like expansions for it and he did like survivalist rules and stuff, which is cool. And I'll get into the, the game and the setting in a moment, but... I just I don't know he he kind of dropped off the map a little bit and I lament his disappearance because he was a it was he's a, a good designer and a good writer and he, he, he just reading this book he's got a lot of things to say and um, he's just completely disappeared so I don't know if anyone knows where James Vale has gone for the last few years come and let us know because I we the the, uh, the world of RPGs is worse off without him in it in my opinion wonderful <laughs> wonderful Zasikala itself is. I mean, uh, a, a quick way to describe it would be it's a, I guess it's a black metal role-playing game, I suppose. Um, but I don't think even that really kind of, that doesn't that doesn't really kind of sum it up uh, in itself. The setting is this kind of nightmarish, dimensional, psychic horror um, kind of plane, and the tone is very dark and sort of i guess black metal i suppose would be one way to describe it but even with that with the recent rise to prominence of this kind of metal aesthetic in games i'm thinking about things like morgborg and its various offshoots um and all the all the kind of popular um well well that that popularity of the the punk slash metal aesthetic if you like um whether or not it has anything anything to do with punk is another question which we'll take back to the discord where it belongs but uh <laughs> i think even in that crowd which is now becoming quite a crowded area, crowded little corner of um, of our hobby. Zasikala still still stands out to me because it feels like a kind of one man demo tape. It feels like this guy's put his soul into it. It's not some company who's who's trying to make a profit. The setting has all these weird quirks and um, strange characters. The character creation is a really good way to um, be introduced into the world because. Um, you can. There's one way to do it is to roll dice, and that will kind of generate your character for you. But the settings that the characters come from is everything from Stone Age, uh, Bronze Age, Iron Age, through to um, a fictional Dark Ages on whatever home planet your character's from, through to um, Industrial Era, 
through to nuclear era and like you, you can play a character from an atomic um, civilization alongside another character who's from the Stone Age and you've both been transported um, via whatever kind of twisted dimensional pathways into this like um, harrowing unforgiving merciless world of ash and bone you know so it's it's got this real kind of um, multitudinous aspect to it that I really like uh, in terms of the setting it, just flicking through the book and reading the magical items and reading the, the NPCs and the characters and stuff really unique um, and for the sake of this episode I won't spend a lot of time getting into it now maybe on a future episode but it's just got this this tone to it that is consistent throughout which in itself is an achievement because this book's quite big um, quite quite dense um, and it, it just it just did a really good job of building the world and um, to follow on from that the mechanics themselves correspond to the setting which is we're coming now on to answering some of the other questions we've got in the Instagram but uh, I think the the world is made because of the the system that it comes with and those two things are so inextricably linked with each other Zasikala becomes an experience you know you're not you're not you're not just kind of stealing the engine to go somewhere else or even if you steal bits of the world to use in your own thing it's a it's a very singular experience and using the mechanics playing the game uh, the way it's designed gives you um this this sense that you're in this unforgiving world because of the stats you've got to manage the two main stats in Zasikala are stress and doom um, and they're right, big letters right in the top of your character sheet. So all the time you're playing, you have to manage these numbers, uh, making sure that your doom doesn't get too high, keeping your stress in in in, uh, in check, etc. So the mechanics tie in directly to the setting and the experiences of the player characters in that setting. And it's just it's just a complete gaming experience for me. Zasikala, I, I couldn't speak about it highly enough. It's honestly all, one of my all-time favourites, and I think it always will be. I'm a I'm a big fan of this game. Do you know what? It's a solid choice. Um, I picked it up when it first came out. I actually had the pleasure to play um, through the the scenario in the book with the author and a few other guys um, online. Obviously, when uh, when it came out, and it was it was such a blast. Um, I confess to have, having not run it myself, um, but it's quite often one of those books I look to and go, ah, oh, you know, I should I should run that sometime because it it really is very cool. And it, it's kind of it's like a like an afterworld, isn't it? Like a kind of hellish kind of um afterlife setting really isn't it i mean i, I think you're, you're dead when you join the game aren't you yeah, yeah 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 um and i think uh correct me if i'm wrong but i think there's some influence with the the kind of the gods and, and goddesses in it uh, kind of that whole babylonian sumerian kind of influence you know through the funnel of of kind of black metal um so it's got this yeah it's got a real unique identity yeah it's a little bit tombs of nephron car it's a little bit uh, mesopotamian Right, right. Um, like horror, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just it's just it's just a really really cool unique little book. That's a solid choice, man. It's good. Right. Okay. We'll we'll do tennis with this. We'll go we'll go backwards and forwards. So, Zasakala is in, in in your list for number one. Solid. Oh, I'm gonna have to and see the bar has already been set high. So, uh, oh yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll we, set it high for myself. Don't worry. You, you've you've gone style here, right? And and I'm gonna go functionality for my first choice. And I, I quite often say this to people when when I'm talking about like top five RPGs. Um, when the world, when White Wolf ended their old world of darkness and created their new world of darkness, which was, you know, the shift of Vampire Requiem and, and Werewolf the Forsaken, etc., they decided to have everything run off one core book, which was the world of darkness, um, what I call the N-Wad Blue Book, 
because it's a blue covered book and, and it's basically the core rules for the for the new world of darkness it's the system which then you bolt on either vampire or werewolf or mage or whatever in order to get a complete game but the nwod blue book stands alone for me as probably one of the most functional um streamlined modern horror slash thriller rpgs that you could find uh, on the market at any time it's so you're able to take it and run whether you want to do a kind of john grisham style thing or whether you want to do like a um, ultraviolet type of game or whether you want to go full hog and do like a bram stoker's dracula or anything you can imagine that's at least you know reasonably modern day but then you you, you can alter it so it's historical but it's kind of designed for modern day um you could do twin peaks you could do true detective you could do imagine all of those things this is the book where the mechanics allow you to do that and because it's essentially a streamlined updated version of the old storyteller system you know a, a combination of an ability and a tribute you create a dice pool hit a target number it's dead easy um it's easy to teach people it's easy to carry around and, and get a random game going it's the kind of book that i would go to if i'd seen a cool movie and i went oh, this this movie doesn't have an rpg what am i going to use to run it this book would be one of the the ones that i fall back to awesome awesome i remember the first time i ever touched this system and it was a game that you were running at uh, a dungeon punks event i think it was the the winter one they put on a few years ago oh, uh, more yes. than a few years ago now yeah it was yeah um and that was the first time i played it and i remember coming away from the table being like man let me what book was that let me get a copy of this like i need i need this system in my life i can see the versatility of it even from spending like an hour and a half or two hours playing with the guys or whatever it was um I just came away from it seeing the possibilities of this this particular system. It's so broad and diverse, but it still has enough in it to get that level of detail that you're looking for based on whatever tone you set. Yeah, it's a really good. Um, it, it it covers a lot of bases, doesn't it? Yeah, you could do X Files with it. You could do Buffy with it. You could do. Do you know what I mean? Like that. That's mm. the the spectrum that it can go on. You can do. You know, any any kind of modern day semi-supernatural thing and it'll it'll cover you like because it's it's just so useful and i think if for, for a lot of gms who have like ideas bouncing around their heads then this is a book you can go back to time after time and and know that the system will be will, will kind of support that idea as long as you're thinking along that kind of modern thriller line um yeah there's there's, there's nothing better to it in terms of functionality it's just it's great would you say it's your favorite game system I think the storyteller game system in general probably is. There are elements mm. to the New World of Darkness system that I find a little bit clunky. I think what they, they almost do a Pathfinder on it where they they kind of add a lot of extra stuff that I don't really feel is, is necessary, um, but it's just extra crunch. Um, but that's so easy to ignore that extra crunch and just, just run the bare-bones system that I, I don't find it intrusive. It's not like it's baked in. It's just added on. Um, so, yeah, I think it's... It, I wouldn't necessarily run it every little optional rule in there as written. But then to defend the writers, I think maybe that's not the intention. I think they're giving you lots of options so that the book remains a one-stop shop, which I think is is splendid, and I applaud that. But I think that the core system itself, the storyteller system, as presented in Vampire the Masquerade originally, I think is uh, yeah is probably one of my favorite systems. But again, like you said, I don't want to go too much into mechanics because I think we have another question where we're just going to deep dive into game mechanics um, in general. So... So I'll kind of hold off on that. Yeah, mechanics discussion is uh, forthcoming in uh, a lot more detail. If you want to hear our opinions on what makes a good game engine or how do you get a good feel for what's a good system and, and etc. Um, because that was uh, some really good questions on, along those lines. We're definitely going to be having that conversation, so stay tuned for that.
balls back to you. <laughs> All right. Okay. So the MWOD blue book that you've mentioned, I'll be honest, would be in, naturally in my in my top five as well. Um, coming off the back of that story I just told, where we where we played it for the first time, and just my experiences running it since then and playing in it since then. Um, but for the sake of this, I'm going to scratch that out of my top five um, because it's already been said, and we want a bit of variety here on Hef. So instead, I'm going to choose Knight's Black Agents. Ooh, I was thinking about this when I asked you if we could use core books or game engines or, you know, what are the rules for this? Because Knight's Black Agents is I'd, I'd probably more on the system agnostic side of the spectrum as opposed to more uh, mechanical and crunchy. It's more of a guide, isn't it, really, than, uh, than an engine? Yeah, go, go ahead and tell us what it is. Knight's Black Agents by Kenneth Height is essentially, it's a, it's a book to run spy thrillers with vampires more or less so it advertises itself as along the same lines as things like the Bourne series of films um, James Bond uh, I suppose more recently things like Tenet um, kind of globe trotting um, or hard hitting spy action adventure um, with a bit of romance a bit of drama a bit of character development um, and their own um, spin that they've put on it is that there's also a supernatural element to the game, usually in the form of antagonists. So it'll it'll it, it, the book is I mean it's a it's a big book, and it kind of describes how not only how to build a good spy story and not only how to build a good horror story, but how to combine those two so that you you're left with something that is a kind of strange and memorable experience. And one thing I really like about it in particular is that it has there's a big section on the vampires and uh, how to include the monsters and how to bring them how to like slowly drip feed your players the horror and how to kind of build up the expectations or build up the, the, the mystery of what are these monsters that we're hunting or however you choose to introduce them into your book. But there's no solid... like like um, In contrast to World of Darkness where Vampire the Masquerade vampires are very specifically Vampire the Masquerade vampires. You know, they have their own set of rules, they have their own lore about ghouls and... and embracing and it's all it's all very written down and strict if you open up knight's black agents it says the vampires could be aliens <laughs> they could be they could be from hell they could be demons they could be uh, your biblical um kind of entities they could be vampires in the truest sense like the bram stoker style it gives you so much freedom as to how and where you want to implement the um the monsters if you like really kind of lets you set your own tone for the game it just kind of guides you along it has it has these different um, suggested kind of atmospheres to set for your game. Do you want it to be quick and fast and and uh, action packed, or do you want to do a slow burn and and let things build over time, or or somewhere in between? And how do you go about doing that properly from a kind of structural point of view? Um, I think it's it's as a as a kind of guide to putting campaign worlds together or to, or writing a story. Um, it's it's almost kind of indispensable. It's almost indispensable to have um, alongside whatever else you're doing if you're thinking of running any sort of horror game or even an action game. You know, obviously you don't have to use everything that's in there, but it's just, it's a really well-written and very densely packed tome of atmosphere and tropes and information, um, setting information that you may not have heard of. If you want, you want to run a spy flick, but you don't know enough about spycraft, then you know the the book's got everything you need in there. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a particularly a big fan of um, spy stories and spycraft that took place in like the pre-internet age. Um, 
thinking about John le Carre, stuff like Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, and that kind of thing, where you know Spycraft, Spycraft was practical and tangible, and it involved code words and obituaries and newspapers and signals and and the, because there was no internet, it was it was a very kind of pragmatic style of of being a spy and what that what does that mean physically, you know? And I think you can get a lot out of that in in a game. And Knights Black Agents does a really good job of kind of leading you through the different areas and types of of not only action flick but horror flicks too, and how to, how to combine those into a good game. So it's it's um, as a guide, it's a great time. It's invaluable, and it's one I uh, I enjoy reading. I also love Knights Black Agents. I just want to add a couple of things there, if I may. Um, the, the first one is um, please that for anybody listening, the, the system is the Gumshoe system. That's the one it uses, which was uh, first introduced in uh, Robin D. Law's ESO Terrorists game and Fear Itself. Um, and it's also the system that works for Trail of Cthulhu. Um, it's at its heart an investigative system, which m- meshes perfectly with obviously everything you've just said. Um, so the system itself, the gumshoe system, is is a it really suits that. And the second thing is, um, I loved what you said about how the vampires can be all sorts of different things. And it's one thing I wanted to add if you did, if you hadn't said it. Um, so you know, some people like to pair fine wine with a meal and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like white white wine with fish, okay. and you know, red wine with steak or whatever. And you know. Um, I would like to pair a, a, some literature with Knights Black Agents to get the, the best effect. And I'm going to highlight a, a group of short stories by one of my favorite writers, um, Brian Lumley. And he wrote a collection of vampire short stories called A Coven of Vampires. Um, and it's a set of short stories. And in each story, he basically assumes a very different reality for whatever the vampires happen to be whether it's an alien vampire or a, like a, a a damned soul or a do you know what i mean like whatever or the, you know, super psychic vampire whatever it happens to be and i think if you read through the stories in a coven of vampires you each short story could be the jumping off point for a campaign that used knight's black agents oh. as its as its game book and i think those two would mesh perfectly Brilliant. And I also, I don't advocate eating meat or fish, by the way, but I just thought the analogy was there. Yeah, yeah. So. In, in, in theory, it's a good analogy, but not in practice, maybe. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. yeah. But yeah, Covenant Vampires by Brian Lumley added to that. But yeah, I, I also love Knights Black Agents. I think it, I think it's a fantastic game. Now I'm thirsty for red wine now. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the gumshoe system, um, It's the book's kind of built around that, but I, you know, you could very easily take... Uh, 90% of the book without ever touching the gumshoe system you know it depends how you want to use it I think but there's there's so much in there it's not it's not it doesn't confine you to run it with that game engine um I, I mean you know not to speak bad of the gumshoe system because it's very it's it's very diverse in itself and it, it has quite a lot of good it has some some pros to it you know the gum, gumshoe can be good for a lot of different types of games but I think Knights Black Agents is probably broader than the system that it's it's using as a vehicle I think this is this is my opinion, of course, but I think it, it it presents more subject matter than maybe Gumshoe, than maybe I would want to use Gumshoe for. You know what I mean? It's it's broader than the engine that it gives itself. So that's probably to the to the book's credit rather than the system's um, discredit, if that makes sense. You know, not to speak ill of either of them, but yeah. it's just just yeah. to say that it's, it's a really good book more than anything else. Um, so that's that's my number two coming off the back of your uh, New World of Darkness choice. That's mine. Okay, so um, I think I'm gonna gonna pick an old favourite for for my number two spot. Uh, it's a game that's very dear to my heart. Um, it's been around a long time. I can assume everybody will have heard of it. Call of Cthulhu. 
Um, it was one of the very first RPGs that I played after D&D and, and Cyberpunk and stuff. Um, my personal favorite edition is the fifth edition. Um, Call of Cthulhu is one of those games where the editions actually haven't really changed much throughout the years, um, just in terms of, you know, aesthetics and, and being a bit cleaner. I think the biggest difference to the game was with the most recent edition, which is the seventh edition, um, which I've flicked through. But I mean, I have so much Call of Cthulhu fifth edition material. It's not that I dislike the new version. It's just I don't need it. Um, I just don't need more Call of Cthulhu rules or different rules in my life. Um, so whichever edition of Call of Cthulhu you have, obviously, as everybody knows, it's based on the works of um, H.P. Lovecraft. And what I love about it is um, being a big fan of the, the literature. Um, it's, it's the perfect vehicle to tell those kind of stories. Um, I think the Chaosium's BRP or basic role-playing system is excellent. You know, it's, it's one of the finest percentile systems out there. It's very robust. It's very easy to use. Um, and I think particularly the core book for fifth edition Kunge is exactly the right atmosphere that I want for telling Call of Cthulhu stories. Um, it allows you to play in three three time eras. It allows you to play in the 1890s or the 1920s, which is the default setting, or in what they call Cthulhu now, which at the time was the 90s. Um, so I think, for me, there's there's enough in there. There's all of the, the beasties and Cthulhu entities that you want. There's you know all the spells and occult tomes, um, but there's a nice little system in there. So for me, Call of Cthulhu 5th Edition um, has, to, has to be in that list, I think. Is it any more or less expensive than 4th or 6th edition? Is it particularly rare to get hold of? Not in my personal experience, no. When it comes to Call of Cthulhu, there are certain out-of-print books um, for older editions that can fetch a high secondary market price. Um, off the top of my head, we're talking about things like Beyond the Mountains of Madness and Horror on the Orient Express, um, which actually you know, either have been or are being reprinted um, by... Um, you know the 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 company now, right. so people will be able to get their hands on this this stuff. I don't know if it's, I, I think don't quote me on this, but I think they're pretty faithful reprints um, that won't necessarily affect the value of your original secondary markets um, because to have the original of those um, is still quite expensive. So, for instance, even though Horror on the Orient Express got reprinted, the original still goes for three figures. You know, it's it's very very hard to get one of those in any decent condition for a, for a small fee um so i think it'll be the same for things like beyond the mountains of madness and, and any of the other classic um long campaigns but no and um, fifth edition or fourth edition or third edition they'll all cost you pretty much the core books will cost you the same on the secondary market value i think if you shop around at the minute you can get one you know for 25 quid 35 dollars you know I, I think there's a reasonable price to pay for any of the core books um interestingly uh i think it was fourth edition third or fourth edition and gw um and obviously gw had the license to print a lot of um different role-playing games in the uk so there are games workshop versions um but then fifth edition it's completely back to chaosium so um not that it makes much difference but there's there's some really cool gw artwork in the older versions um but the the fifth fifth edition book for me, I think it's a nostalgia thing as well. It was the first edition that I got, um, and I've just kind of stuck with it. and And I think the source books are, are great. All of the Arkham Country source books go along with it. But um, the core book itself, I think, is uh, is spot on, and you can get a lot of play out of it. Awesome. I like the sound of a retro crossover between old old GW stuff and Lovecraft mythos. That sounds pretty cool. Um, if I was going to run a, um, if I was going to pick up Call of Cthulhu. Is the book versatile enough that I can take bits from it to use in other types of games? I understand that Lovecraftian horror is a very kind of specific brand of, of horror. 
and doesn't really lend itself too well outside of its own bubble, which of which of course it does excellently. But in just in terms of versatility and utility, what what use can I get out of this book outside of just your kind of standard Lovecraft story? Is there is there enough in there for me to take over to um, any other kind of horror or action game? Okay, so I mean, I've got to preface this with any any creative GM can squeeze stuff out of any book. So what I'm about to say, if you disagree with me, that, that's fine. But it's about how much work is necessary. And we're maybe going to talk about the average GM, if such a thing yeah. exists. Um, I would say that what Call of Cthulhu does, it does very well. Um, but it's very narrow focus. Right. I would not... Um, agree that you could really take that and apply it to much uh, to many other things. Okay. I think the Call of Cthulhu mythos has been spread thin over all sorts of um, licenses and, and media over the last kind of 20 to 30 years. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to avoid cuddly Cthulhus and Cthulhu slippers and Cthulhu-inspired TV shows and, you know, Cthulhu-inspired kids' books and all of that nonsense. But um, So I think we understand what the mythos is. Um, so anyone can put mythos stuff into their games even if they don't quite realize they're putting mythos stuff into their games um, but I think it would be hard to take anything from the Call of Cthulhu core book and apply it to anything else without it just becoming Cthulhu you know because that that is what it is it is unashamedly a vehicle to allow us to explore the world set down in those short stories um, and it does that very well but it, it because of that its remit is very narrow and not particularly wide right specifically a lovecraftian type thing then i i would say so but but what it does it does very well okay all right that's that's something we'll have to get into on a we'll have to maybe do a deep dive on call of cthulhu one episode because um i imagine with, yeah. with so many editions and and stuff there's hours of hours of uh, chat to be had there yeah, we could go through the different editions all the way from, uh, you know, first edition box set called Cthulhu in the 80s all the way up. Yeah, we could do that. So, guys, if that's something you're interested in, let us know. Get in touch. <laughs> Humanenergyfieldpodcast.gmail.com. Join the Discord. Um, okay, so that was your, what was that, your number two or number three? That was my number two, so it's up to your number three. Okay. I'm going to go with the Cypher system. Ooh. Yeah, I'm going to pick Cypher. Um, New kid on the block. <laughs> The relatively new kid on the block, Monty Cook's um, probably maybe my favourite thing that Monty Cook's done, and I'm including Planescape in that statement. I've, oh, I've not yet opened uh, Tolus, but I can't imagine that it would um, really float my boat in the way that Cypher does. But I chose the Cypher system because as a as a kind of um, quote-unquote story-based gamer, as, an, as a narrative GM, or at least, at least attempting to be a narrative GM, shall we say, story's the most important to me, and... I like a game that has mechanics that um, coincide with the story and boost the story along and don't get in the way and kind of put the story first. And by design, that's what Cypher is from the ground up. It's a, it's a story-based game engine that is designed to put the story first and to disappear into the background when it's not needed and to not get in the way and to not be crunchy and to allow the story that you're telling to take the forefront and stay there. And I am maybe about two-thirds of the way through a um, campaign using the Cypher system at the moment. And it's it's a, it's it's a saving grace compared to some other games I've played, stuff like Apocalypse World, which is probably in the, in the bottom of my... in my bottom five games. Um, you know, when you, when you play the game where the mechanics get in the way of the story and then you come over to something like Cypher System, which is designed to put the story first, it's such a breath of fresh air... Um, Especially as a GM who does a lot of improv, um, I, I tend to um, 
write a certain percentage of any given session and then improv a certain percentage of any given session. I'm not giving away my secrets here, so that's all you're going to get. But uh, the Cypher system does really well at filling in those blanks and just giving you the, the few tools that you need in order to really confidently be able to, to run any, any type of story in any setting, you know? Can you give us a really um, brief synopsis of, of what the mechanics are like, the basic mechanics? Everything in the Cypher system has one number, which is a difficulty rating from 1 to 10. And that number corresponds to a, a number that you have to hit on a d20 roll. The difficulty number that you set for any given obstacle or challenge, um, it's up to the players to use their modifiers to bring that number down. So you're trying to roll over the number. Maybe it's three or more, six or more, something like that. Um, if the challenge rating is quite high, then the players with their modifiers, with whatever skills they have, whatever assets they're at their disposal, if they want to apply extra effort with a capital E to that role, then they're able to do so in certain circumstances as well. And if they have a particular edge in a particular type of interaction, they can also apply that. Each one of those steps brings the difficulty of the challenge down a level in order to make it easier for them to hit that target and to roll, to, to roll over that target. So. All the players are concerned about is bringing their one challenge number down for any given thing. So all of the things on the character sheet uh, mechanically are designed around um, the the amount of points you have and the amount of the amount of points in your pools for your stats to spend on bringing these challenge numbers down in order to succeed at that challenge. So you could set something really difficult, or you know you you, you think you're setting something really difficult. Um, maybe it's it's doing some really daring, heroic move like jumping from one moving horse to another or something like that which under normal circumstances might be quite impossible and then before you know it your character your your player has gone you know what i'm i'm going to decide to spend a lot of my points on this particular move because i want to make sure i can pull it off and they bring the difficulty level down by three or four numbers and before you know it it's right down near the bottom of the chart and they're able to completely ace that role so it puts a lot of the agency into the hands of the players in order to say you get to kind of decide where you're going to apply your effort um, what roles are more important to you than others, and how are you going to use? How are you going to spend your points to um, kind of move the game in the, in the directions you want it to go? Yeah, it, it puts a lot of power into the players' hands, which I really like. And it's it's a the GM is hands off dice, which is how I play anyway. It's just what I was going to mention. Right, right, okay then. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I as 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 best as I can. When I'm running any game, unless, you know, maybe the system specifically calls for it, but I try and keep my hands off the dice and just have the players roll, for example, attack and defense or, you know, the players roll anything that is a any kind of challenge. That should be something that the players have some degree of either look or control over. And that's that's baked into the cipher system. And I think that works really well. Um, the GM, as uh, the powers that I get as a GM, if you like, apart from obviously being in control of the story, um, you get to have uh, intrusions so I can trade my players XP for a um, story beat so I can say look I this isn't going the way I wanted it to go I mean I'm thinking not saying this out loud to the players but I can say in my head this isn't going how I want it to go if I GM intrude here for my, my players just push the game a little bit towards where, I'm, where I had in mind or I've got a cool set piece and the players aren't activating it but I'd like to bring it in because it would fit perfectly here right now you can say to your players if you take um, a certain amount of XP I will. I would like to intrude on this scenario and usually make it worse. I'll be honest. You usually add to the tension or add to the drama, um, and in, 
if they choose to accept it, which of course you would, they're given XP as a reward, which they can spend on upgrading their characters. So it's um, when e even the mechanics are based around how to improve the story, and any any mechanic that you are using or utilizing in the game or putting into effect is ha usually has a direct impact on on the story that you're telling or or the the direction of the story. Um, so as a storytelling system, it's 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 suited me fine. It's it's really kind of served me quite well. It's so interesting to um, to have a game where all of the dice rolls are in the player's hands, and it reminds me of reading some very old gaming magazines going back to you know the the kind of genesis of D and D and and reading about some groups and, and games where all of the dice rolls is in the GM's hands and the players never roll anything, and it just it's so weird. <laughs> I can't imagine what that would be like playing that. What is it like a conversation? Yeah. Just watching someone else roll dice. Yeah, there's so there's so many weird things in original D and D. It's like you also used to have this thing. I know I'm going off a slight tangent here, but I'll keep it brief. Um, you used to have a party caller. So basically, there was one leader in the party, and they would all like discuss things. And it, only the party leader would be able to talk to the GM and tell them what the party was going to do. And none of the other characters would speak to the GM wow. or even was allowed to speak unless the party leader was was doing it. It's just such a bizarre concept. But, um, you know, I guess, you know, these were, the, these were the original foundations of the RPG, hobby under so and we've, we've grown wildly beyond them now. <laughs> but it's so interesting to see that the pendulum swing entirely in the other direction. That, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's a good point, actually. I couldn't um, I see this game existing you know, 15 years ago or something, it's quite a kind of, well, as, as far as I know, it's quite a progressively minded um, bit of writing. I think Monty Cook is to be applauded because um, Cypher System's been around a little while. It's in its second edition now. And I think um, when it first came out, um, hidden in amongst a game called Numenera, um, I, I thought it was a real breath of fresh air and I think it ushered in a uh, kind of mini golden age of, of kind of what I'll call independent RPGs. I know it's not necessarily technically correct to call anything Monty Cook does independent, um, but what I mean is that, you know, it wasn't Dungeons and Dragons, it wasn't Shadowrun, it wasn't Cyberpunk. Um, to have a brand new game come out under, you know, a, a brand new game company to speak, um, I thought Numenera really, really shook um, what what was happening at the time when, when I remember it coming out and um, obviously the cipher system was then extrapolated out from, from Numenera and given to be a generic system so yeah I think you have to give a lot of credit for Monty Cook for um, developing cipher system when he did he's, he's certainly shown himself to be um, ahead of the curve when it comes to that style of game design without a doubt yes yeah and it's it's my style down to a T and I, I would have maybe uh, chosen Numenera because I do like that setting but um specifically the cipher system is my choice because of its it's you can do absolutely anything with it and it will work so it's that's the my my number 3 is the cipher rulebook second edition another excellent choice thank you very much over to you my friend ah oh, thanks um I, i'm going to go i'm going to go a bit a bit of a weird one a bit of a maybe maybe i'm saying this and i'm going to say it's an unknown game and loads of people going oh, i've heard of that um but as far as i was concerned it's a bit of a lesser known game um and it's an aquatic sci-fi game called Blue Planet. Um, it was originally published by a company called Biohazard Games. Um, that's the version that I keep in my personal collection. Uh, it's great for collectors because there's only two books in the in the series, but we're specifically talking about the, the core book. Um, it was later taken on and into a second edition by the guys at Fantasy Flight, I believe, and then a lot more source books were out for it. And... Um, so that it's much more common to find the fantasy flight version of Blue Planet, um, 
but I specifically like uh, the original because you know it had its own system. It was big, big, very dense book, um, very high concept. Um, did what it did very well. So the the, the overall idea behind Blue Planet is um, you know mankind is taken to the stars and whatever, and has found a planet that is essentially water world for for want of a better um analogy um obviously covered in water and it has its own kind of aquatic um living beings and stuff but mankind has colonized it so it ends up having this kind of alien outland kind of sci-fi colony feel um and it's got all those kind of that blade runner-esque level of technology um but then it's set on this really bizarre environment which is water so then you get all of this um ideas like you know aquatic cyber tech um which is not something you kind of think of when you think cyberpunk and there are other games that have challenged this and done this um over time but i think blue planet is just this this wonderful mix of genres um you know it's kind of like dsv meets blade runner um it's just like it, it it's really cool it's really it's really different and that's what i like about it um but it doesn't pull any punches when it comes to the flora and fauna and society and civilization and you know it it treats it it's very scientific it's very kind of grounded so it's very low and gritty cyberpunk sci-fi but it's it's got this kind of semi-fantastical background to it and it's 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 things that maybe on paper you think wouldn't work but then when you when you get them together it's 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 a success in my opinion and not a lot of people have heard of blue planet how old is it Oh, you're testing me now. Um, I think the original Blue Planet's probably going to be very early 2000s. I think late 90s, 2000s. Very, very late 90s, maybe. 97, 98, something like that. Um, I remember the Fantasy Flight one kicking about in the early 2000s. So, yeah, it'll be before that. But there were only two books for the original bio, uh, for the original Biohazard version, which was the core book and one called Archipelago, which was a thin source book, which was a bit of a gazetteer to some of the the islands on the, on the, the planet, of which there weren't many. Obviously, most of it's covered by water. But. Right, right. Awesome. What's the uh, what's the game engine like? Uh, it's specific, so it's got its own game engine. Yeah. Um, it's quite it's quite crunchy, um, but it's, without going too much into it again, without going back into mechanics, it, it's one of these things where it, the mechanics have been designed to suit the game. Um, Love it. And it part of the feel is that very scientific very grounded feel is is represented in the in the, the game engine it is there's a lot of charts and facts and figures and, and it's not it's not a forgiving game engine i must admit it's not one if you if you enter into it looking for rules like game that is not what you're going to find um but i think that's also common with a lot of games from that kind of 90s time period where people would create a system for their own game and it could be quite complicated and quite like with a hard learning curve uh, it's not unusual to find that in a lot of games um because rules like engines just weren't the thing uh it just they, they weren't i mean i'm not saying they didn't exist but they weren't the norm back then like kind of like they are now um and so yeah so it's it's quite a quite a complicated system but um but it, it, it suits its purpose but again like anything, if you really enjoyed the the setting, you could then pick up your Cypher rulebook and run it with Cypher or, you know, uh, or the NWOD rulebook or anything else that we've mentioned, you know, you could use to run Blue Planet if you didn't have the time, energy or intelligence to, to master the, the system <laughs> within. So I know I'm being cheeky there. I was enjoying <laughs> Okay. Okay. I like that a lot. What's the, uh, what's the art style like? I'm trying to picture this book in my head, but I have no, no visual reference for it. What does it look like? 
Well, I'll start this with saying um, arts for babies. But um, of course, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, do you know what? There isn't there isn't a huge amount of art in it. Um, the the art that is inside is is black and white, um, quite simple, and actually, it's a really big, dense book with kind of small font, and uh, which which I really love because I'm getting a lot of content. Um, and I think if the art isn't amazing, I don't want it splashed throughout the book. Um, so there are there are scant images the images that are in there are fine it's not it's not the best art um but it isn't the worst either i've seen a lot worse um but art's thin on the ground through the book um so it it, it can look quite a challenging game if you picked it off the shelf and flick through it you'd be like you know this telephone directory full of you know small font and a few (laughs) images um but you know i think sometimes you know the effort versus reward ratio if you want to get stuck into that and you could argue the other way that new modern game designers have managed to get across theme and tone in in a much more kind of um, aesthetically pleasing uh, way, and maybe that's a skill in itself. I think that's that at some point that becomes just a an opinion and a, and a, and a stylistic kind of choice. Um, but for me, I think it's there's a lot of content there, and I, and I think they realised that they didn't want to take up too much paid space with illustrations when they hadn't they didn't have like a top-notch um illustrator but the stuff that's there is fit for purpose um but uh, there's there's not a lot of it really i mean that the book. yeah that rings true with me definitely because you want to have i mean you pay you're kind of paying for the content and you're paying for the words aren't you really that's that's where the game is well i mean yeah i mean traditionally but um, <laughs> things are things are changing aren't they but true yeah true very very true things are changing but in terms of um uh, value for money, you know, or or at least the amount of um, time and hours you get out of get out of this game. You want uh, as much kind of writing in there as possible, really. And and obviously, art is just kind of because they ran out of space, and there's nothing really valuable in art as itself. Obviously, as we all know, and art isn't really for anyone over the age of about twelve. You know, it's pretty. <laughs> like, and the best kind of games are the ones that have no art in them at all or even the hard absolutely i mean just even the covers is really they should just be unformatted bits of card that hold together the pages of words really there should be no cover art for anything i don't think i mean that's the goal that's the goal isn't it yeah to just have an unformatted script of text without any grammar or punctuation in it and to just have words no none at all yeah i mean just yeah yeah i mean that if you want to put the effort in that's what you get in it but people are just lazy nowadays make people lazy they just draw things like lazy babies yeah i don't know what it is yeah shocking people just want to play troika it's awful (laughs) (laughs) jogging troika's fine uh segue into my number four yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) no you know what man troika's in my list but um i actually want to pick for my number four Similar to your probably less well-known um, obscure science fiction, I would like to nominate for my number four a game called Hack the Planet, which is a cyberpunk forged in the dark game. Right. So it's forged in the dark. Whatever you have to think about the system, we'll come on to that in a second. It's written by a guy called um, Fraser Simons. Um, published by a company called SJK. Fraser Simons, I know, has done a lot of other stuff that I can't think of the top of my head right now, but he's quite a prolific games writer. Um, maybe you've heard of him. I'm, I'm sure he, he tends to do mostly kind of science fiction stuff. Hack the Planet is um, particularly appealing to me because it's a very it's a very good bit of cli-fi or climate fiction. Um, it envisages a dystopian world 
which is ravaged by natural disasters. Um, all kinds of natural disasters, earthquakes, tornadoes, um, uh, rising sea levels, um, dust storms, and static storms and stuff. Um, and it's kind of a, a mega city and you're playing like various types of criminals or ne'er-do-wells in this uh, like authoritarian mega city. Um, and there is value to be to be found in these in these uh, extreme weather events. You know, you can gather data from them, or they maybe they leave behind things of value as they pass, or they open up new places, uh, new ways to travel through the city that weren't there before, whatever it might be. So the I really like how the game uses these weather weather events, and they are events when they when they occur. You know, it's not just like a it's not like a, a bit of rain in the, in the in the british midlands these are real uh, extreme extreme <laughs> weather events um and uh, i like how the game uses those uh, as part of its kind of integral um to the system so it's a forge in the dark game which is a kind of heist based system i'm sure a lot of people are quite familiar with that um system forge in the dark has a relationship with uh powered by the apocalypse which uh, earlier on in the episode I mentioned was at the bottom of my bottom of my list. So this is a this is a conflicting one for me because the the system itself is something that I I don't particularly um, gel with as well as something like cipher. But I just I'm a I'm a big fan of climate fiction and I just love the idea that these uh, what does he call them? he calls them acts of God these weather events in in the book. So in in the in the book's law they're called acts of God. You know which in itself carries a whole load of connotations that you could explore if you wanted to just by itself. But I just I love the idea of that kind of um, interaction between advanced human civilization, advanced human technology, um, with all its kind of trappings and with all its kind of benefits, and then the natural world, kind of as as it tends to do, telling the human race that they are ins insignificant and just coming along and sweeping things off and uh, carrying things away and destroying things and and leaving behind piles of wreckage and then you're playing these kind of uh i guess in a way they're like parasites your 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 little um your little player characters just tiny people in this huge city who are just doing their best to get by based off um you know whatever opportunities arise from these weather events it's just it's a it's a great little kind of it's a great setting and i just i love the way the weather's included in it and i love the uh the different character classes in it and um the kind of pacing of forge in the dark works well for me you know, they have the heist and the downtime and that kind of thing. So it's it's a uh, it's it's a good for one shots and it's good for shorter sessions. Do you know what I love that because um, one of the many many reasons I love doing this with you. Um, I like to consider myself that I keep abreast of RPGs and you know know about them and stuff like that. And it's getting harder and harder these days because there's so much coming out on on so many different levels. You know, Kickstarter, indie, like everything. You can't keep up with everything. Yeah. Um, I've never heard of that, and that sounds pretty cool. I'm going to check that out. Cool. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up a copy and uh, I'm gonna order one of those and, and look through it. It's not. It sounds cool. Good. Yeah, it's great. It is it is worth worth a look through. I think it's out of the books that I've seen Fraser Simons do. This is um, the one that's appealed to me the most. I'm actually, uh, this has just come back to me now. But I actually, back this book on Kickstarter. I completely forgot about that. It must have been years and okay. years ago. Um, right, right, sweet. The art style is this weird kind of. It's it's kind of half digital photos. And half like in some places it looks like the artist has taken tiny bits of bitmaps from other images all over Google and then kind of squashed them together and made 
figures out of them and made scenes out of them and stuff um, and in some places right. it looks really realistic and um kind of there, there's a realism to it but in some places it's this kind of vectorized like uh high res like digital art style it's a very strange uh images to flick through but because of because of i'm assuming how the artist put together the images and how he how he's composed them there's some really great scenes there's there's um you know try and picture something like kowloon walled city or the real kind of um slums of a of a of an area and then in the foreground he's got like um, a bunch of plants and big floral green bushes and pink blossoms and then some like cyberpunk dressed people on motorbikes picking through the flowers for whatever reason so it's a it's just cool. a yeah it's a really cool like a uh, strange art style to match this setting that i haven't seen in many other places um mm. You know, and obviously you've got the whole kind of mega corpse that you're railing against, as as with any yeah. good yeah. cyberpunk dystopian fiction. You're playing the underdogs, railing yeah. against the corporations. You know, that's that's the only way to do it. But um, it's yeah. So it takes the tropes that we know and love, and it kind of updates them a little bit, and it adds in um, extreme weather, uh, which is lovely and dramatic, and makes for great set pieces. And it's just a it's just a, it's just a well put together setting. Awesome, awesome. Uh, number four for me. So what's your number four? Do you know what? That's, there's a lot of cyberpunk getting into this list, and there's going to be one more here with my uh, with my fourth choice. I've got to go for another classic. Um, it's a game that most people will have heard of, Shadowrun, uh, a game that is very dear to me. I've played a lot of Shadowrun. Um, now, I'm going to specifically say Shadowrun 2nd Edition. Um, I think a lot of new gamers or people new to the hobby or whatever um, will be aware of Shadowrun. It's, st- it's still around and has been around a long time. I believe it's in its sixth or seventh incarnation. Um, sixth, I believe. Um, I-, I don't care much for the new ones. We could get into a whole uh, deep dive on, on Shadowrun, which maybe are these things what we should do because actually we did have on Instagram a few people requesting you know deep dives into particular game lines so i think maybe if we highlight call of cthulhu for one i think Shadowrun could be another full episode because it's gone it's been published for you know the best part of 30 years and um it's had a lot of different source books and a lot of style changes and how it's kept up with modern technology um because Shadowrun was obviously created in the, the kind of late 80s when our idea of cyberpunk was fresh out of you know william gibson and and that kind of stuff and blade runner and and um, George Alligator and stuff but Shadowrun turns everything on its head as everybody knows combining fantasy with cyberpunk so we have all of those basic cyberpunk tropes you know the, the mega corporations that you've just mentioned and you know the kind of uh, brutal urban cities and everything but then we had orcs and dwarves and dragons and magic and shamans and, and corporate wage mages and all this kind of stuff and then combine it with elven deckers and do you know what I mean like um, so it, it was just a it was a marriage made in heaven. Uh, it was something that hadn't really been done before on a, on a big scale. Farsa made a big crash with Shadowrun. Um, you know, Cyberpunk was already very popular, um, but they managed to kind of turn it into something else. Um, and I think Second Edition, it, it's the the game system is fairly easy. It's fairly easy to get into. It's not very complicated, which would be my main issue with uh, the more recent versions of Shadowrun. I mean, for me, it started going downhill about kind of fourth edition ish. Um, it's kind of changed hands through different companies over the years, but um, to me, there was great support for for second edition Shadowrun. Um, it kind of worked out its little few kinks that it had in first edition, which is often the case with many games. The second edition tends to be um, the finest edition um, before it loses any of its its 
unique identity, but after they've had a chance to, to kind of iron out any uh, initial flaws, of which in first edition Shadowrun there aren't many, to be fair. But um, yeah, so second edition, second edition Shadowrun, which is, uh, I think the default setting is still Seattle, um, but definitely kind of Northwest America or Northern America in general it is the area covered by, by the book. Um, and obviously takes place in a world set around 2050, 2070, that kind of time, um, when a lot of the population have changed into, you know, demi-humans and magic is back and all of those amazing things that, you know, never make a deal with the dragon. If, if people haven't played tabletop RPGs, I'm sure they've seen, you know, um, Shadowrun computer games or comics or novels or whatever. And for anyone who's watched Netflix, Bright with Will Smith is essentially watching Shadowrun. So, um, mm. yeah, I think I think no no list would be complete without mentioning what I think is one of the cornerstones of, of kind of second wave modern gaming, which is Shadowrun. Yeah, I was expecting it to be brought up at some point. I think as a... An outsider, um, which I was, I suppose, I suppose, still am to to some degree, to Shadowrun. It's very easy to look at what they're doing and think it's kind of goofy. You know, ad- adding in magical races and things into what is already quite a densely packed uh, fictional setting. You know, any cyberpunk can be as 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 rich and dense as you need it to be without without magical additions. From a outsider standpoint, when I first heard about what Shadowrun was, I, I thought it kind of sounded a little bit goofy, but as I as I read and experienced it, they actually pull it off, and it actually works well, and it doesn't seem overwrought or or shoehorned. You know, it seems it seems like it's it's a kind of natural fit. They've managed to to develop their own really solid internal consistency with what's happening, but I think you you do make up a valid point that um, Shadowrun, at its essence. You can't really take it mega seriously. You can't, you know, make it a really dark urban game like you could with Cyberpunk or World of Darkness because, you know, it has, you know, dwarves flying helicopters and, you know, dragons in boardrooms and all that kind of stuff. And no matter how you try and spin that, it, it, it is going to be a bit lighter in tone, unfortunately. And, you know, everyone's game will be different. And I'm sure you people can play some really serious Shadowrun games. But I think at its heart, it is a bit like, you know, fantasy um sci-fi dnd i mean that's kind of what it is and i think it, it's not really an accusation to level at the game i think it's just an understanding that that's what it is and i think if you approach the shadow and table you are approaching it a little bit more fast and loose and i think you don't have to take it necessarily too seriously i don't think it takes itself too seriously i think it it never falls into parody um well not the early ones don't necessarily um but i think you you're right in what you say that it there is that goofy is a strong word but it is that that kind of cartoony element that that kind of little more kind of light-heartedness to it just because of what it is but that's not to detract from it you know it's a very popular game that's that a lot of people have a love for it i certainly do and played played a lot of shadowrun it's in terms of hours spent at the table um shadowrun might might be up there with the top three games that i've spent the most hours playing in my life but that's because it's that it's so easy to play and so easy to get people into Right, so if um, I'm thinking in terms of like time periods now, like eras of gaming, if I was going to pick some kind of retro cyberpunk game um, from the era of Shadowrun 2E, I should pick that over Cyberpunk, the game. I mean, capital C for those listening. Cy- cyberpunk, the game. I mean, what's what's the kind of mechanical advantages to Shadowrun over Cyberpunk? Less less story and setting, more mechanical. Hmm. Um, it. They're, well, they're, they're totally different mechanics. Um, you know, Cyberpunk is is 
I just I don't think there's a mechanical advantage over either of them. I don't right. I don't think I would put one of the mechanics over the other. They're right. both solid mechanic sets that that lasted a long time and supported two very good game lines. So I think I think looking at it mechanically. I could imagine playing Shadowrun with the Cyberpunk system, and I could also imagine playing Cyberpunk with the Shadowrun system. I don't, I don't think either of them are necessarily better than the other one, right. or or not necessarily entwined with their settings. They're just. This was back when every game had its own engine. You know, they weren't just borrowing engines, and everything just wasn't powered by some stupid apocalypse. Like, <laughs> you know, if you if you were a game designer, you you made the effort to to create a system and. You know, Foster created one, and like I said, he ironed out the kinks with it, and, and it was a good system. But uh, you know, Artal Sorian did the same with Cyberpunk. His was a um, a gritty um, Friday night firefight system, which was what it was originally, and then it was kind of developed into into uh, Cyberpunk. So it just made sense because stylistically, Artal Sorian and, and and Mike Pondsmith wanted, um, especially. Um, gunfire combat to be very deadly and it is in cyberpunk you know you can it's very deadly whereas Shadowrun has a more heroic D&D feel to it um which is quite fitted to its setting so it's a little bit more survivable um not massively so it's still quite a deadly um firefight mm-hmm. system but um especially when people have got like you know a lot of cyberware and a lot of advantages and stuff like that but you can also get good armor and there's you know good healing and you know any world where you can the mage can heal the mage can heal you and as well as a trauma team is you know your advantages are getting a lot better but um yeah mechanically i don't have an issue with with either of those so i i don't wouldn't see the advantage in comparing them mechanically i don't think right so it's just a, a case of tone and taste yeah, it's just a case that there were two games, and back then two games had two systems. That that was it. There was very right. little sharing of systems that wasn't really done. If you brought out a new game, you had to have a system. Right. This right. is pre-open gaming license. This is pre any of this. Do you know what I mean? Pre-rules light. You know, you kind of had to make up a system if you wanted to release a game. Fascinating. What's your um, favorite Shadowrun character to play? Ooh, uh, tough one. Um, probably. <sighs> Mm. It, it's a very tough one because it, there's such a wide remit. But I'm gonna say um, I'm gonna say Street Samurai, cool. which is the kind of Shadowrun version of the Cyberpunk solo. Uh, it's just cool. You can get some cool guns and some cool kit, and you can go a lot of different stylistic ways with it. Um, I think with a lot of Cyberpunk games, playing a, a Decker or a, or a Netrunner it is fraught with problems for the rest of the group. Um, even though I like Shadowrun's magic system, um, I'm, I'm not really bothered about being a magician in that game if you know what i mean i have played some mages before um and i think you know shamans are quite cool because you can pick like a totem animal and that that can you can get a very different vibe with that but i think if you want to play with the cool guns and the cool kit then street samurai is the way to go plus also street samurai just sounds cool doesn't it so it sounds cool as hell yeah you're right yeah yeah <laughs> so i'm looking forward to doing a uh shadow run deep dive episode because we've got to give that uh, an hour or two of chat yeah, we, we can go through all of the how, how the world is and what the different source books were covered and the progression of the game throughout the different editions um, because it, it has been a long, long-running, long-serving game that has gone through several game companies and st- several editions. So, yeah, it's, it's well worth looking into. Isn't it? Brilliant. So, Bordy, if you're listening, we'll get you on for that one, mate. Yeah, yes, without a doubt. We'll have you know Mark Shadowrun Boardman on there for uh, the Shadowrun <laughs> chat, without a doubt. Brilliant. Yeah, I'd... Uh... That's, it belongs on my shelf as well. One, one, there's an empty Shadowrun shaped hole on my shelf that I need to uh, need, need fill with Shadowrun. So, so we're nearing the end of this list. So come on, then balls back to you for final choices. Oh, okay. 
Number five. In the name of suffering. Nah, nah, nah. Um, <laughs> so, um, so it's it's a toss-up, man. And um, I've got an honourable mention that I'm going to get to, which will be 5.5. But for, for my fifth choice, I'm having a bit of a um, difficulty choosing between two. Uh, you know what I think I'm going to do? Okay, so my fifth choice, I made my decision. Vornheim. Ooh. Right. I mean... Uh, contentious contentious and this is this, this conversation is not about to get uh contentious so shame shame <laughs> yeah sorry but that's not why we're doing this this isn't top five biggest con- controversies on the internet this isn't a uh, top five edge lords this isn't anything like that we're not going to be uh praising anyone or uh admonishing anyone we're not here to do that uh, make up your own mind about that stuff we of course have our own opinions but um this isn't the place for mine but i've Vornheim and by extension Frostbitten and Mutilated under the banner of Lamentations of the Flame Princess um, had a impact on me as a GM and I can't, you know, there's there's no real way to deny the kind of influence that specifically Vornheim had. Um, Vornheim is a city book, I suppose, would be a way to say it. There's no game engines in there but there is a lot of setting knowledge. Uh, there's a lot of setting information there's a lot of uh generators for things and random tables and there's a lot of uh utility in the book and that's i always come back to this every time but this is something that um really makes a book for me is what's the actual use i can get out of it and vornheim was the first book that i that became a kind of staple of my fantasy games or maybe maybe not even fantasy games but it became a staple for any type of game i was running i'd go around to a friend's house or i'd be having players over or i've been invited to run a game somewhere whatever it was vornheim's going in my bag every time um sit at my table do prepare my things i'm thinking back to pre-covid now i'm getting i'm getting nostalgic and teary-eyed but you know if I've got music, set the music on. If I've got a backdrop or whatever I'm doing, set it all up. Vornheim's on the table by my hand every time. And if I need to do anything in-game um, or if I want to give players any kind of choice about, I don't know, who they're talking to or what they're seeing or when you loot the corpse, what's in there or anything, go to Vornheim. It's, now, Vornheim is quite, um, has quite a specific tone to it. Um, it does have this kind of dark and twisted uh, feel to the city that it presents and all the locations in the city it presents and the NPCs that you can kind of generate with the book and that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, even, even if you're running a game that doesn't match the tone of the book, i found that it still has a lot of use because it's it's just, it's a kind of powerful generator for things. Um, you know, like it, it talks about how to generate a quick map for a city so if your players are going down back alleys and if you've got one of these games that is um taking place in a in a dense packed kind of city or suburb or some sort of metropolis the book instructs you basically to cast some dice onto its pages and the fall and position of the dice generate your uh alleys generate your your map for you so it's not like you're just reading words and then doing work in your head and then that out- output is a map you actually have like the the book kind of empowers you as a gm to use the tools that you have which of course you've got a lot of dice around you're a gm it empowers you to use those to kind of generate stuff on the fly 
in a lot of different ways whether it's just rolling on a table and picking you know number 64 down here number 72 oh that makes that and that or whether it's casting die and the the, the actual fall and the location of the fall of the die in in create something or whatever it might be it's just so without actually having a game engine you still get a lot of use out of it for whatever you're using and that's something that became very quickly very dear to my heart and very kind of influential to, to the way I like to approach games and the way I like to run things so I mean opinions on the author aside it's it's a it's a it's an influential book for me personally but I, I don't necessarily agree with um, the the surroundings of it okay interesting you know I, I think Vornheim was instrumental and um, a real champion for the random table wave that that followed it you know I think it's it was definitely a very fresh um, type of gaming book when it came out. It was very different. It didn't look or feel or act or behave like any other gaming book that was really around at the time. And I think it deserves credit for that, um, you know, design-wise. Um, you know, I think Vornheim really, really made a splash, didn't it, when it came out? I think, you know, it was it was very different. And, uh, yeah, I can, I can totally agree with its, you know, it, in terms of utility, it's it's a very useful book and it's you know um there's there's no denying that absolutely yeah um, i mean and that's that's i mean to this day something that i look for in most new books that i buy is when i'm flicking through the pages and trying to get a feel for it is how how much actual practical use can i get out of this book on a regular or semi-regular basis and how how much am i going to put my finger on it and pull it down off the shelf you know do you know what yeah 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 i think that's a that's a valid way to look at a lot of books when we are we're given a lot of the, you know the agony of choice you know which is great to have so much choice now in this this kind of hobby um but you know our choice is a, a lot um wider than our than a lot of our free time um or you know free money and things like that you know so having to make those choices one of the things which is 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 fair to to be a, a yardstick is how much use am i going to get out of this you know yeah yeah i mean that's not to say that i'm, I'm not guilty of um maybe occasionally getting a book that I don't plan on playing but I like to have on the shelf you know as as I'm sure we all do yeah you know if something's nice to look at it's nice to look at but uh yeah as a as a barometer for what's good use is up there and I'll get a lot of use out of Vornheim and uh, if I was going to run a fantasy game I, w I would still now maybe go for it and see if there's anything in there that I haven't I haven't yet completely plundered mm. so yeah Vornheim and by extension if you're interested in Vornheim, I would also recommend checking out Frostbitten and Mutilated, um, which is kind of in the same vein, but is a bit more kind of snowy wastes and Valkyries and uh, um, very kind of uh, female-centric survival horror, I suppose, would be a way to put it. But that's it's, that's a, that's a quite cool book as well. And again, yeah, I like that too. Yeah, yeah not not uh, mentioning anything specific, but that's that's worth checking out, I think. Um, and it might be. I mean, you never know. I, I don't know how Lamentations of the Flame Princess is doing recently, but I kind of feel like it's uh, dying a slow and painful death. So these might be relics of what will soon be an old time. Do you know what I mean? What will soon be a kind of a kind of forgotten period. I think you know, as you've said, he he's not the time and place to talk about a few different things. But uh, and I don't want to to do a massive sideways thing into Lamentations. But I've always said this. I think you've got to give. Um, James Raggy and Lamentations of the Flame Princess credit where credit's due because I do not think we would be in the environment or the place we're at RPG wise and design wise if it wasn't for the work and the idea that he put his head you know above the castle walls doing Lamentations of the Flame Princess and I, I would say a lot of 
OSR. I always use the term post lamentations because I think it was a real um, solid uh, signpost in in the RPG design um, kind of world when when that came out. To, brave enough to to kind of take that and push that forward. And you know, it's a little bit style over substance, but then it, it doesn't need to tie itself down or whatever it is. And you know, it we could talk about lamentations and kind of how it changed from its original offerings to like what it then became and what it means and what it did mean both to the designers and to the, the kind of rpg community at large but i think you have to credit it with the work that it did and the ground that it cleared for other writers and designers to come in and follow it in the same vein definitely it did, it did change up the scene a little bit didn't it yeah, massively i, I think it, it you know irre irreversibly changed it and I, I think you know we wouldn't you can argue till the till you know the cows come home and the sun comes up about you know would we have morkborg uh, and and stuff like that if it wasn't for lamentations and yeah. i would i would vehemently agree that we we wouldn't um you know i'm not saying somebody wouldn't have come along and done something you know it's, someone's got to be the first but i i think some people don't realize how how long lamentations was, was kind of banging at the door of rpgs before everybody let it in you know <laughs> yeah 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 um, so and there's a lot of other uh, you know creators and designers who kind of allied or assigned or you know became kind of partisans of that lamentations of the flame princess movement um and you know there's some great little things out there you know whether it's fire on the velvet horizon or you know the, bluebeard the, pride or, or just weird little lamentations connected books that don't necessarily have the lamentations stamp on them um that that only exists because lamentations exist and i think i mean maybe you know vonheim you know would vonheim exist if it wasn't for lamentations probably not no um, certainly not yeah certainly not so i mean you know was he going to do that for for D, D or did lamentations provided this platform you know this kind of art house grind house you know approach to stuff which i think um kind of taught people that the, the rules could be changed and you know as i said it's not like it inevitably wasn't going to happen but you have to give credit where credit's due i think and um and i, and I think lamentations massively changed the the rpg landscape it's a strange subject to broach obviously because of the um the kind of problematic writers who are responsible for a lot of the stuff that we we're enjoying but it's the same as i don't know it's, it's a difficult one but you know you can listen to a certain type of music and enjoy an album without the artist's um, toxic views getting in the way of the the way the music makes you feel, and I I to some degree that's the same with RPGs. I mean it you know it depends on specific circumstances. This isn't going to be a conversation about that, but I would I would advise people who are interested in um, Vornheim, in Frostbitten and Mutilated, in the a range that Lamentations has to offer, which is a very broad range of books. Um, a few of which are sitting on my shelf, and I, they're in, they're enjoyable to flick through. Um, but I was I would advise uh, readers to separate the writers' views from the books and just kind of take the products as they are, and uh, not not really not really pl place too much faith in in who wrote them. That bodes well for my frog being my last choice, right? <laughs> please no, please no, <laughs> please no. Man. I'll take back everything I said, please. Uh, all right, so again, yeah, round this off, and I'll uh, I'll get the option number five. Um, uh, I'm going to do another a classic, but maybe it's a classic that I think has gone, it's kind of disappeared a little bit now. Um, a lot of the gamers who've been around a long time will, will know of it, and I'm going to give a little bit of historical background for it. Um, it's Ars Magica, and Ars Magica, oh. specifically third edition Ars Magica by White Wolf. Um, so basically, Ars Magica is a game where you play um, mages of, of great power um, in the, the default setting is kind of 12th century mythic Europe. 
a few of the things that are really interesting to me about Ars Magica is um, it introduced um, you know a few con- concepts and was a champion of, of a few different things that I think have, have moved forward and have massively affected the way that I think about games the way that I run games the way that I read games and stuff like that so um, Ars Magica published by White Wolf in its third edition uh, it was originally published by a company called Lion Rampart so Mark Reinhagen of Vampire Fame um, obviously was the kind of first designer on, on Ars Magica and and then when he got together with, you know, the boys at White Wolf, it was published in its third edition by White Wolf. Um, Osmagica has at its core a magic system, which is, in my opinion, the finest magic system that's ever been published in an RPG. And I realize that's quite a bold mm-hmm. statement, but um, but it is it is the um, the precursor to the magic system that found its way into Mage, the Ascension by White Wolf, which is essentially a modern version of Osmagica. Um just exactly it is it's it's also set in the same world and that comes to my next point which Ars Magica is unashamedly set in the world of darkness but in the 12th century this is well before anyone had even thought of Vampire the Dark Ages or anything like that um you know you have what's referred to as the Tremere incident um which is you know a, a group of mortal magi uh, of House Tremere wanted immortality so much that they uh they found a sleeping vampire and turned themselves into a clan and they are now the you know clan tremere that exists in vampire the masquerade so there are these um, undeniable ties between these these two licenses which have been removed as the games moved on and went over to different hands um after the third edition it went over to atlas games and they kind of played down this whole thing um and then it became its own kind of medieval mage game but apart from its amazing magic system apart from it shedding some light onto the ancient version of the world of darkness um it also was a great champion for something called troop play now a lot of people will will know what troop play is and a lot of people have different ideas of what troop play is now that uh, the rpg community is is going in some wild and wonderful directions um but the idea that you can play several characters um and you will bring one of those characters of your your choice your roster of characters along to a specific adventure and Osmagica was really good in the fact that you would create almost like a character pyramid. You would create your mage at the top of the pyramid, who was very powerful. You know, magic was great, and 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 you could do lots of amazing things with it. Then underneath, you would have companions, which are basically equivalent of your standard D and D characters, whether you have an archer or a knight or something like that. And then below them, you have what's called grogs, which are kind of servants. You know, um, shield grogs, cooks, bakers, all these kind of lower class characters that are kind of dispensable you can grow to love them but they can change over time it, it was originally intended that maybe grogs just formed this this kind of layer that you could you could just borrow from characters could just borrow each other's grogs whereas companions were considered you, you kind of major player characters and then majors um so that if there was three or four characters sitting around it three or four players sorry sitting around a table they might begin the session talking as their mages and then deciding which mage is going to go on an adventure and which companions are going to go with them so that every player can take a character from their roster and you could take turns. So I will take my mage out on this adventure and you would take your knight and then next time I would take my archer and blah, blah, blah. And we would all live in the same, you know, covenant or, you know, wizard's tower and, and you could build up that as its own separate character and move it through seasons of success and decline and all that kind of stuff. So had some really interesting role-playing um, kind of concepts in terms of how to run a campaign or a chronicle and, you know, how to share world-building duties and player character duties and stuff like that. And it's 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 an almost flawless game in its presentation. The system is elegant. The magic system is fantastic. Um, the setting is well-realized. Um, it doesn't fall into this 
this horrible um, problem that a lot of the White Wolf um, boys did of trying to describe another place that wasn't modern day America or Canada and getting it wrong. Um, you know, which which they fixed over time, but you know, there's a lot of the early books are just really, really bad. Um, whereas Ars Magica is it kind of it, it's not pretending to be historically accurate twelfth uh, century Europe, but it, it's it, but it's well presented. You know, you get an idea of the 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 culture and the, the the times and the fuel system and the law and all this kind of stuff. And the majors kind of live outside of this. Um, and there's a lot of source books done for it, but the book itself is a big, mighty tome. You know, it looks like a spell book in itself. Um, you know, there's there's a lot. It, it turned the idea of the wizards on its head because a lot of gamers at the time were coming from this Vancean D&D idea of magic where you only have so many spell points and you forget a spell and then whatever. It, one of the big taglines for Osmogica when it came out was like, to a mage, each spell is like a child it knows it inside out it can never forget it so it's like you have this power you have these you understand and also split magic down into like different elements so it was about how well you control this elements whether it be fire or animals or or all this kind of stuff and it's how you combine these kind of spheres of control in order to creatively um come up with a a spell that you needed at the time but you know it took it took magic very seriously in that 12th century way it wasn't wasn't flashbang magic it was very ritualistic it took time but it was very powerful so it's got a lot going for it but anyone who's really interested in in playing a a heavy game of mages in a kind of 12th century europe ars magica is the game to go to and, and third edition is the edition to go for Amazing! Sounds so cool. That troop play idea. Just what a what a kind of groundbreaking uh, groundbreaking idea for the time. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. It just allowed you, and you ended up with a big cast of characters. I played some great Osmagica games, where you know grogs that you kind of create as a throwaway character, almost a red shirt to use a kind of you know Star Trek uh, lexicon, and end up being like really <laughs> lovable or important um, kind of supporting characters in your campaign and it, it really supports that kind of idea awesome I'm, I'm a big fan of any game that tries to take something we're familiar with and turn it on its head the idea of like the, the weakling wizard who will get killed in the first combat and has to hide behind the barbarian for the whole time is turned around to become the absolute powerful focus of a whole campaign I really like that idea anything anything like that that twists tropes around um regardless of the fact that they did it so well is very appealing to me you want to see familiar things done in a different way yeah. you know yeah so there there endeth there endeth our our top fives and do you know what if you asked us if you asked us next week we might have another top five you know what i mean but don't worry we're not going to subject you to that but i mean you know i'm sure i'm sure as we go away we'll think ah oh, dang it you know i've remembered another one and i think that's you know not to keep plugging the discord but that that's where i think i'll be on the discord saying you know this uh, this is the one i forgot this is one i forgot blah 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 yeah, not not definitive five yeah, by yeah, any stretch of the yeah. imagination. Definitely, um, you know, yeah, it will it will certainly change over time. But at least it's a kind of feel for our tastes, I suppose. Yeah. Um, do you have any honourable mentions for a sixth place? Uh, I think very quickly, I would have to mention uh, Middle Earth role playing by Iron Crown Enterprises from the eighties, which was the Tolkien esque. Um, the only reason I didn't put it in my top five is I think the core book alone um doesn't provide the best gaming experience but i think as a game line it was very very good and it's my my favorite um incarnation of of tolkien's middle earth in role-playing form but um the the core book i'm not entirely certain i couldn't just run lord of the rings with D or something and it'd be just as good but the, the the source books make the game what it is for me but the core book alone isn't the finest example of a core book if i'm honest right okay okay 
I was I was planning on mentioning Mage the Ascension, so I'm glad you, you uh, mentioned yeah. Ars, Ars yeah. Yeah. There you go. And uh, Troika as well, just because we mentioned it earlier. So uh, if people are interested in Troika, check that one out as well, because that's a really good little... Um, kind of post-OSR system. Yeah, it's kind of post-FNF system, really, isn't it? It's post-fighting fantasy. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. But that's good. That's uh, that's worth checking out as well. I mean, you know, what was that one Instagram question? And that's an episode. So, guys, send in your questions because we love uh, having that interaction with you. And it's, if it's something you want to hear about, we'll we'll squeeze out as much time out of a question as possible. I'm, uh, this has been enlightening for the both of us, which are always the best episodes when we both learn things live on air. I really yeah. like that. So, yeah. uh thank you for your questions guys on the instagram do keep an eye out in the stories for any more polls we're going to be posting up with uh, any further kind of um opportunities to get involved um as well on the discord of course uh there'll be the conversation will continue so please do come and join us over there where we'll i'm sure we'll have top six to ten yeah. <laughs> I'm, i know i'm i'm already already picturing a lot of the conversations that this will start uh, I'm, the, I'm gonna go on the discord and so i'm not going to do this on on air but on the discord i'll, I'll do my worst five without a doubt so ex- expect that <laughs> expect me on the discord slagging off five games that i think are terrible so oh, and that, that'll, that'll be Can't contentious so. all right okay brilliant tell us about this um Warhammer second edition conversation that you were having on the Discord because that seems like um, a good example of the the kind of interactions that people can expect to to witness or take part in. Yeah, it came out of um, I I must admit I can't remember I, I, on one of the episodes I must have uh, I referred to Warhammer forty thousand second edition as childish, um, which you know is fine and I, I kind of stand by that. But um, somebody on the it does have art in it. You know? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and, and you know quite rightly and quite nicely. Um, one of our Discord members, um, shout out, um, Shattered Shields, um, came on and went, you know, you, you called, I've listened to this episode, you called 40k second edition childish. Um, you know, what, what do you mean? And it's great because that is it's a good opportunity for me to expand on something which, you know, is, it's, you can see a comment in the middle of something and not really get around to it. Uh, um, we had a really good chat and it was great. And, you know, what, the good thing was about it is we, we could band it backwards and forwards. And, you know, he, what as it transpired, you know, second edition was, was kind of where he started. He's got a lot of nostalgia for it. And I said, you know, nostalgia is a very powerful thing. And, and obviously, you know, I'm old enough to have played through all the different editions. And I think what we came around to is, was really interesting. And I think maybe this is a subject for another time is I was calling it childish, but it was designed to be um, kind of it, the target demographic was then children. Um, I think Games Workshop was at a period where Rogue Trader was really taking off. It was becoming very popular. Uh, younger players were getting into it, but were finding maybe the rules and, and whatever a little bit um, inaccessible. And it knew it needed to capitalize on that younger demographic. So it created second edition, dumbed down the rules, um, you know, put a cardboard orc dreadnought in the box and monopause golf boys and whatever, which was fine because they, they managed to bring the entry price down a little bit and, and bring the understanding down a little bit. So I think to defend that comment, it, it is a childish game, but it, it's not a childish game. It's the most childish version of 40k, um, which, you know, it was only out of whatever. <laughs> But it was intended to be that, you know, it was designed for that. The, the colours were a lot more flashy, you know, the, the, the books were a lot easier to read. Um, you know, it came as a boxed game for the first time, you know, two players, which was a very kind of, you know, Hero Quest Milton Bradley thing to do back then was to bring out a, you know, a starter box for two, you know, buy your kid for Christmas or a birthday and two kids get in and play it and put it, put it back away in the box and put it back on the shelf, which is, you know, how to get kids into that kind of war game. So... 
uh, we, we chatted backwards and forwards, which was great, and about how 40k spawned um, Necromunda and Gorgon Walker, both of which we absolutely love, and, you know, ended up saying, you know, I, it's not that I'm saying second edition is shit. It's not. It, you know, it's got a lot to accredit it to, you know, it, it, the creation of Necromunda. Even though technically if we get into it, it's not because Confrontation, which was the precursor to Necromunda, actually came out of the... Uh, white dwarf in rogue trader era so but you know for warhammer historians that's an entirely different chat but um the first mainstream edition of necromunda came out of the second edition rules as did gorgon morgan and and um and then he quite rightly pointed out that we you've got shadow war armageddon which was a kind of precursor like a, a tester version for how people were going to react to kill team and i really like shadow war and he really likes shadow war and it, it is kind of an updated modern version of of kind of Necromunda second edition 40k but with with better graphics and, and a bit more grown up you know um so it was nice to end up finding that middle ground and you know we both love shadow war and you know blah 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 and being able to kind of lay a bit more um insight into the comment that i'd made and i think we've always said this you know if there's there's something you either do agree with or don't agree with please hit us up on the email humanengfieldpodcast at gmail.com or you know, hit us up in the Discord because it's great because it'll spark more conversation and that's good. And now, you know, I, I he has done a post about Shadow War on his Instagram, so I could go and find him on Instagram and follow him and I'm sure I'm going to have a chat there about it as well. And it just creates that extra network. So it was really, I love doing that and that's why I love being on, on the Discord. And it was, it, it was just because we were literally having that chat just as I was about to set myself up to record. I said to him, you know, I'm, I'm going to mention this because, you know, it's a great chat and it's a great, great idea to kind of get people on and get people talking about stuff and, and it made me think about a lot of wider stuff you know about you know um aesthetics and marketing and games being aimed at younger audiences and you know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing it puts puts adults off does it not you know there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting topics there about that but um yeah 40k second edition childish so <laughs> yeah there is a lot to be said and it's a conversation that you could take in a million directions which are as I'm sure listeners know, our favourite type of conversation to have here on Human yeah. Energy Field, but um, it's it's a it's a kind of a question of degrees. Like you could you could be a third edition fanboy and look at second edition and go, well, that's really childish. But then anyone else looking outside could look at Warhammer Third Edition and say, well, that's also quite childish. So it's it's all you know it's all it's all about subjectivity. Is isn't it? Like you know, true. Star Wars is Star Wars is kind of for kids. A lot of the science fiction that we like is kind of aimed at children, but we all kind of either aware of that and uh, completely happy to accept it as it is and to love it for what it is or we were kids when it came out and it's, as you said nostalgia is a powerful thing and it's still that inner child inside you that is you, you want to keep your inner child happy don't you and to do that you have to tug on its heartstrings with with things like for in this case why i'm a second edition or whatever whatever it was that you as a child enjoyed you will still follow that through now to your adulthood and you could be 30 40 50 years old and and your inner child will never age and it, you it still needs that little uh itch to be scratched from wh whatever it was that formed you know whatever it was that formed it initially yeah and i think also that this was not what was happening at this conversation because actually this kind of discord is, was really great and came out we with a genuine question we had a good chat but i've also had other interactions not on the discord in in kind of uh previous to even setting up the podcast you know online and instagram where people can get really upset when you tell them the thing that they love isn't very good and it's like look you know i'm, I'm not taking away your enjoyment of it. it and it's cool that you like it i'm just kind of pointing out why i think it's just not very good like kind of objectively not very good 
Um, and I've always found that, especially in the gaming community, I think people can be very um, almost brainwashed or kind of fanatic about defending the thing that they like. And, you know, if you don't like it, that's a personal attack on them. And I just think, you know, there's, not, there's no time for that, you know, just don't don't worry about it. I'm not, I'm not attacking your love of this thing. I'm just expressing an opinion that I'm not it's as in love with it as you are. And, you know, that, and yeah, that's yeah. okay. It's not a direct no. assault on the ego. No, that's, it's definitely not the case. And um, I, I, that still happens with, uh, with with kind of modern games and stuff and that. And do you know, you know when else I noticed that? This is a really weird thing. It's slight like tangent, but it's connected. When the Dune trailers first started coming out for the movie... I kind of wasn't, I wasn't a big fan. And, you know, I, but I was very vocal in saying, you know, I haven't watched the movie, so I'm going to withhold my opinion, but I don't really... I, yeah, I think we've spoken yeah, about it. Yeah, I don't, don't like the look of it. It doesn't, it doesn't re- massively appeal to me. And, like, everyone, like, pretty much responded to me going, what? Like, it's, it's brilliant. You're an idiot. Like, how can you possibly think that? And mm. it's like, it's just my opinion, dude. Like, you know, yeah, I, don't, I don't have to like it. And I'm like... Am I talking to people who helped make it? That that's the kind of response that I felt I was getting, and I was like, "Well, you know what? What what do you have invested in this that you hate me? Literally hate me saying it's not very good." What did Timothy Chalamet slide into your DMs oh, and start trolling? Unreal. You? And do you know what? Every everybody, I've stopped speaking to people about Harry Potter because people can't take it. That's a separate thing, you know. That pe- people can't accept that I don't like Harry Potter and that it's not very good. And I'm, I'm like. But they're like, yeah, but he's just sold millions. Of, I don't care how much he's sold. You know, people voted for Trump. Popular things don't have to be good. Like, it, that's not <laughs> the issue that I'm getting at here. I'm getting at the fact that Harry Potter as, as you know, whatever, as an idea, as fiction, as whatever, isn't very good in my opinion. Um, people get really upset about that. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, there's no accounting for taste there really, but I think you, it, it depends on your, like everything else, it depends on the context you're you're coming at it from. If you're someone who's spent decades exploring various fantasy worlds and then a really and a really badly written fantasy world rises to prominence well you, you've seen 20 that are better than yeah. this so of course it's, it doesn't mean anything to you whereas someone who's their first introduction to the world of magic or whatever is harry potter and they've, they've never experienced anything like that before it's gonna it's gonna seem to them completely groundbreaking and and the best thing they've ever read you know so it, it's i think context is really yeah. important in those kind of it's, things it's a power of nostalgia and and how they attach it to their personality and their identity as well i think is massively important yeah the identity attachment thing that's a little bit that can get a little bit intense um i mean just let people like what they like you know what i mean oh uh-uh, no yeah need... i mean but that's it like i'm i don't have an issue with people liking it it's mm-hmm. it's it's quite it's quite frankly it's the other way around they're upset that i don't like it and yeah, it's like yeah. i'm okay with you liking it why can't you be okay that i don't like it you know, it's okay that you think it's good. I'll I'll sit and listen. You tell me why it's good. That's fine. You know, and I've read the books and I've watched the movies, but I, it's just I don't find it good, and that's okay. I don't want to take anyone's joy away from it. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not that way inclined. I, I don't I'm not upset that other people like it. Just I find it lacking. And but then yeah. people yeah, and that, that should be fine. But then it's not fine. That it's like no, you must like it, and it's like well, I don't think that's how this works. You know, you know what definitely made Harry Potter better was J.K. Rowling retroactively adding a bunch of um, different, various, diverse types of people into the book that weren't in there when she wrote it. That just made it better. Right. How, what? How, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. I'm just being dry. Yeah, Nothing, never mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I prefer actually that. Is it the Harry Potter with guns? One's replaced with guns. If you find that on YouTube, that's absolutely superb. Awesome. Okay. Sweet, that's on my street. That sounds that sounds cool. It's brilliant. It's worth watching, actually. Which is shame for Harry Potter, but you know. Snow pops Dumbledore, yeah. And there's no Harry Potter RPG. So for people listening out there, how that didn't get made, I don't know. 
Wow, actually, yeah. How is that not a thing yet? You're right. That's yeah. a, I'm, I'm quite surprised. Know. They did a few things, didn't they? I mean, my Harry Potter knowledge isn't the best, but there was, I think there was a miniatures game either in existence or did exist fairly recently. Um, and I know Wizards of the Coast did a card, collectible card game for Harry Potter. I'm sure there have been multiple board games of various types, but but no um, no RPG, which you'd think that'd be screaming for an RPG, wouldn't you? I guess. I mean, I'm not sure on the, the crowd, the fan base. I'm just thinking now, I know that how many Doctor Who RPGs there are, so I'm, there's there's definitely a crossover in that in that area. It's only three Doctor Who RPGs. How many books are there, though? Um, Quite a few in the new one, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So if there's yeah. if there's that many things for for something like that, I imagine yeah. by extension that there'd be some Harry Potter stuff. But yeah, I don't know, man. That's yeah. a, that's a, that's a maybe, strange one. Maybe it's just too expensive. The license is too expensive. Maybe. If there was a Harry Potter RPG, would you play it? Um, do you know what I would? Because I would I would enjoy um, messing with people's idea of what it was. <laughs> um, I would make it really dark, um, like darker than than you know than he who shall not be named, like mega cool. dark, you know. Um, proper, I like that a lot. yeah, I, yeah. That it'd be like, I don't know, mix Harry Potter with like Bowling for Columbine or something like that. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's the direction I think I'd go in. So, you know, I just, I just want to see how fast my players leave the table. I don't know. Maybe I'll do that at a con when things are up and running again. Do you know I mean? so, so. <laughs> yeah, lure them in with the promise of a happy, fun time Harry Potter game, and then yeah. Uh, yeah. throw some Michael Moore at them. See yeah. what happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. Have, Have you guys seen Elephant by Gus Van Sant? Well, I drew, yeah, drew off yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I actually went to um, I went to the Tyneside Cinema in Newcastle uh, on its release to watch Elephant. Wow. Yeah. Powerful wow. film. Good. Yeah, powerful. Just like Harry Potter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, speaking of films, let's segue now into a film because we're instead of talking about Elephant and getting our listeners all depressed. Which, by yeah. the way, I do recommend you go and watch it. Gus Van Sant's a great filmmaker, but that's besides the point. I recently went to the cinema and had a screen where no one else was sitting in it, which was lovely. Wow. To watch the new Ben Wheatley film, In the Earth. Um, and it was really good. And I wanted to I wanted to mention it to you, mate, because um, I recommend it. I I haven't seen it and I don't know what it's about, so give me give me the give me the rub, give me the lowdown on this, what is it? Cool. It's a um well, Ben Wheatley is a uh, really talented um, British director who you may know from such films as High Rise, uh, he did Down Terrace, he did the excellent film Kill List, um, and he also did A Field in England, which is still my favourite Ben Wheatley film. Um, if you've not seen A Field in England, I highly recommend you go and check it out. Um, this film, In the Earth, is kind of in the same vein as that. It's a... I mean, I suppose... I, I suppose I should, should call it a psychedelic folk horror, I suppose would be one way to describe it. It's a kind of descent into pagan terror it's kind of character driven um there's a, i'll tell you what there's not a bad performance in this film there's it's a small cast but every actor really um pulls out the bag and really kind of makes it what it is because it's it's a very very much a character driven piece um right reese shearsmith is excellent in it um he puts in a really good performance um it's kind of worth going to see just just to see him in it uh, in a way, he's just—he's a, a really great, kind of unconventional uh, character. I don't want to include any spoilers to see because it's right, in okay. the cinemas at the moment. So I'd, I'd wanna, I want to—I will pass over this film briefly without diving into it too much because I recommend you go and see it. But Reese Shearsmith's character is a very unconventional type, and he—I think he plays it very well and uh, has this kind of um, 
mania to him that is, is kind of simmering under the surface. I really rate him, um, uh, and I think it would have been so easy for him to uh, fall into like some sort of typecasting, you know, post uh, League of Gentlemen, and I'm so glad that he hasn't. Yeah, I mean, well, he continues to defy boundaries, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah and he's, he's great in this um, as well. So I know what you mean. He definitely could have become that kind of... Mm. I don't know, if, oh, I don't know, for example, the type of British actor who would appear on Harry Potter, for for example. But uh, um, yeah, he's he's continues to break the mold and do his own thing, and he's he's really good in it. Um, the protagonist, whose name escapes me, um, I recognise him from some previous films. And there's also the kind of supporting role or the secondary protagonist is the one of the girls from Midsummer, the British girl from Midsummer, who uh, her boyfriend leaves her. And she gets she's there with the backpack, and she's like, "Where did Simon go?" You know, if you know who I'm talking about, she's in this film yeah. as well. So it's a it's a good little cast. It's it's this strange kind of slow descent with a lot of um, a lot of the kind of imagery and uh, folklore and symbolism that is becoming very popular at the moment. It's really nice to see this big. I don't want to say resurgence, but maybe it's in, maybe it's an insurgence, but a big a big rise in interest, uh, definitely across Britain, um, and probably in places in America, um, overseas. I don't know, guys, get in the Discord and let us know, but certainly in Britain at the moment, uh, people far and wide from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of interests are uh, taking a, a decided um, kind of interest in our folk history and our folk horror and local folklore. Um, you know, I'm thinking about things like Weird Walk or Wolverstein or yeah. Hellebore. Yeah. Um, you know, these things are massively popular, and um, the spillover into film is something that I'd expected. But I'm really glad that Ben Wheatley's kind of spearheading this as well. You know, there's a there's a big uh, interest among Brits for this. There's a there's a big uh, appetite among Brits for this kind of thing. I've got two questions. Well, they're kind of one question. Would this would the plot of this movie make a good RPG scenario? And if so, what system would you use to run it? Great, love that. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this without any spoilers as well, just because I like a challenge. Yeah. Mm, yes, it would. It would make a good RPG. I think it would be it would be fairly, um, fairly small. So I wouldn't it wouldn't be a campaign. I would, you could maybe do this film as an rpg in, in a single session you know maybe three right. or four hour maybe like a good good show. convention game yeah probably a good a good convention game i would say it's tricky because it's without talking about the ending it's tricky to kind of say how you'd wrap it up so I, i'd yeah. probably whatever rpg you you could get out of with this game i think you would end up um making your own ending right yeah. forging your own ending from it um just because i'm thinking back to the ending of in the earth now and i'm getting a i'm gonna have an epileptic fit but um yeah, there's a there's a definitely there's definitely enough in there for you to have a big in-depth hopefully character-driven horror adventure in nice. a woodland. Nice. Um that is not what it seems and uh, the, just the way the characters interact with the woodland is just really uh it's it's a great mix of kind of old and new. Um and it's it's almost how modern people living in a woodland how they would do it, you know, there's no um no frills it's just it's really kind of grounded and really really great so with that in mind in terms of the setting uh in, no sorry in terms of the game engine in terms of what system i'd use to run it with um i mean is 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 troika an easy answer is that is that is that a cop-out if i say troika i mean it doesn't it doesn't scream horror to me but you know 
Yeah, I mean, oh, just I think just because it's it's got that kind of bucolic Britishness about it, which I think suits most right. of Ben Wheatley's films. But ah, oh, man, it's a strange type of horror. You see, it's not it's not particularly cosmic in scale. So I know we mentioned Call of Cthulhu earlier. I don't know if that would particularly um, match well. It's just a small scale, little kind of mental uh, story. Yeah, maybe Troy Good Woodwork then. You know. Yeah, anything, anything that's cranial, anything that has that kind of uh, introspective horror to it. I don't know if any systems are screaming at you right now from what I'm saying, but I don't, mm. nothing, nothing really stands out to me as a, as a system I could use to run something like that. I'm not really sure. I don't know enough horror games then, maybe. Mm. Mothership? Mothership, maybe. Yeah, maybe. That, Mothership so has a lot of um, planetary adventures, doesn't it? Going down onto a planet. Yeah, because you can kind of modify it to, to whatever, yeah, so... Just take take the mothership engine. So ah, might, that might not be a bad show. Something yeah. like that, though. You're on the right lines there. Cause yeah, small scale, okay. little group of players. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Something like that. But um, yeah, I do recommend In the Earth and uh, Ben Wheatley's filmography in general is is worth a dive into. Um, if you're into just mad, weird, cool, independent British films, um, Kill List is one of my favourites, and A Field in England is actually mentioned as an inspiration in the Lamentations of the Flame Princess book, England Upturned. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. It's kind of the default English Civil War setting for Lamentations. A Field in England is a is a Civil War, uh, English Civil War film. Nice. To, to a greater or lesser degree, depending on your opinion of it after you've seen it, but right. it's, it's in essence, it's a, it's set during the Civil War. But So, In, in the Earth is, is one to watch, is what you're saying? It's one to watch, and if you can, go and see it in the cinema, um, not only to support the filmmakers, but also because at the moment, no one else is going to the cinema, and it's a great experience. We had, you know, sat right in the middle of the whole screen, feet on the chairs, mask off. We get to laugh, and we, you know, we were joking around because there's no one else in there, so you can you can talk and talk things through while they're happening. It was great. The only thing you can't do is pause it, but otherwise, yeah, it was a really lovely experience. Almost as good at being at home. Almost as good. <laughs> Less safe and more expensive. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, uh, as we're approaching near towards the end of the episode, uh, I remember you saying you had an announcement, so I think this might be time for the announcement. Okay. I think it is, you're right, and coming off the back of uh, British creators as well, thank you for that. I would like to let our listeners know, if you have at all been interested in um, the things that we talk about, if you're interested in our inspiration, if you're interested in... Um, games that we discuss and the things that we run and our taste and things if you have any interest at all in um, my style of gaming specifically I'm about to release my first book so um, you can find that on our big cartel shop uh, I'm going to be putting it up there for release uh, the book is called Care Mundus The Lost Realm um, maybe you've heard of it before it's been around a little bit it's been fermenting in sugar and barley for several years to the point where it's now kind of uh, quite high in alcoholic content um, and it's ready for general consumption so um, if you like uh, Bronze Age settings if you have any interest at all in Celtic fantasy if you are interested in um, low fantasy worlds and twisting tropes on their head if you're interested in books that have a lot of utility in them like we've been discussing earlier on this will be up your street um it's designed from the ground up to be a toolkit for the gm for the gaming table so i've i've designed this book um from the very beginning to have use at the gaming table like we were discussing earlier something that you'll be able to actually put your hands on and, and 
uh, get things from. So I'm, I'm really excited to be able to be bringing this book out now and to be able to be um, hopefully sending it out to people and having you guys uh, flick through it. It can be on your shelf. You can use it for your writing. If you're a player, there's lots of inspiration in there for you as well. If you're a GM who you you know you're in a tight spot or you, you you've um, you're looking for a book to bring along to a game or if you're running games into the webcam like I am a lot at the moment, it's one to have down in front of you to reference. Can I maybe twist twist your arm into saying that you uh, you might set up some sessions to run on the Discord? I think I, I think I have no choice but to run Kevin. Yeah. Don't, don't yeah. you agree? I think so. I think you know. I think that would be good. I'm I'm certainly going to play in it. So, you know. Brilliant. Um, yeah, I'll be running certainly a few sessions of Kevin. I'm hoping to put together some sort of all stars um, session with a few choice players. Ooh, but I'll, I'll nice. uh, open it up on the Discord for for wider remit. Um, this is a system agnostic book, so you know we can try it with different systems as well, which is another thing that I like about it. So you know, for example, you could use some of the some of the systems we've been talking about earlier, like Troika or um, Lamentations or Dungeons and Dragons. So it's it's kind of designed to be quite versatile. So um, the final form it, it will take for each of those games I'll run on Discord may be different. Maybe I'll use a different system each time. You know, there's a, there's a lot of ways to approach it, but I certainly will be uh, opening up some invites. Um, to come and play in a game of Kermundus with me. Uh, I'm just really excited to, to kind of bring it out and to, to have people be able to finally read it and uh, get their hands on it, you know, so... Yeah, I mean, obviously, time. you know, it's, uh, it's your baby for you to talk about, but I think it, I would be remiss of me not to say that, you know, I've personally seen the amount of time and work that you put into it and, uh, and seen the product that's come out of the other side, and, you know, I'm really excited for you to have this out and you know i'll be really excited to you know even though i've seen the versions on its path to its finished form you know i'll be uh i'll be really excited to get hold of that finished form as well and to uh to to see some games going on to, through the discord and stuff i think it'll bringing it to life will you know it, it's clawing its way out of the boggy marshland do you know what i mean so that'll be great it is it is it was it was given to the sea but the sea spat it out and now <laughs> it returns as a bad omen yeah. to to wreak havoc upon your your small lands and your little villages is this all-star game is this is this maybe uh in the direction of uh human energy fields first actual play is that mm, i don't know may, may very well maybe man yeah it could very possibly be human energy fields first actual play let's think about that yeah let's think about may, maybe maybe a bonus episode of, of an actual player came on this let's 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 put that as an option stick a pin in that <laughs> listeners if you're lucky that'll you'll be that'll be reaching your ear holes at some point in the future yeah yeah sweet Brilliant. So yeah, I mean, um, that all by the time this episode airs, uh, that should hopefully be on sale or coming up to being on sale. So if you're listening to this and you're at all interested in um, a book that I've written, uh, check out the Human Energy Field Big Cartel. Um, it should be on sale there. The product page um, should be there, visible. Or DM me on Instagram at Gamma Valley, and we can arrange to um, sell you a copy there. Um, hopefully, it will be in. Um, enough places for you to find it there's also going to be a free adventure module pdf that i'm going to put on drive through so if you don't if you're not too sure about shelling out for the book you can open up this pdf that i've um, created as well which i've called votive offerings which are of course my votive offerings to you guys the listeners and um, you can decide if it's something that you uh you you like the the tone of and the setting of and if you want to then go and, and shell out for the book um, after reading the little free PDF, then that's something you can go and do as well. So there'll be a few things for you to peruse and explore, um, and I'm sh I'm absolutely certain we'll mention it on future episodes as well. But that's just a 
just to get the ball rolling i just thought I'd, I'd let everyone know so thank you for sticking around for this amount of time to um to hear that announcement i'm very excited to see uh what is what comes next yeah i was just about to say that you know this is kind of just the, the first initial announcement i'm sure we're going to come back and talk about various parts of the book because it is uh it is a book that has very different offerings inside of it and you know as you've said we kind of synergistically have talked about utility at the gaming table and it certainly has that in buckets so we'll be talking about maybe some of the best ways to use the contents of this book uh, on your gaming table whatever game it is that you are running um i think there's 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 definitely going to be some interesting chats there to be had about it so yeah this isn't the last you're going to hear about it brilliant sounds good we i think we did an episode about practical combat advice and we got a lot of good feedback from people who appreciated the actual like uh, pragmatic side to the hobby and you know listening from people who can give advice and guidance on stuff so there'll be more of those episodes and ken mendes will feature in that as well because that's kind of what it's written for so um if you liked our episode on combat advice then stick around there'll be more advice for your how to improve your gaming table coming up in future episodes and also we, we did, as we said at the beginning, we, we got some more real solid um, conversation topics from Instagram over the last couple of days. So we are going to return to some of them um, in, in, you know, we're going to get a deep dive on on mechanics and what we think uh, makes good mechanical systems and how we evaluate mechanical systems. And we're going to go into the concept of um, how to introduce background law to your um, player group without maybe huge info dumps and the, the best way to kind of present new worlds and, and backgrounds to players and tips and tricks on how to do that for GM. So the, we've got some great little suggestions that we're going to, you know, extrapolate into either sections or full episodes. So we've got some good stuff. So thanks for that, guys. We really appreciate everyone um, who got back to us and were, were really pleased and uh, kind of blessed by the, the, the massive reaction we got to that. So thank you. As always, thank you very much for listening because without you guys this would not exist so your input really does make the show and i hope that you guys can feel that direct link between your questions and posts on the instagram and the discord and the content that we end up putting out and uh, i think uh, i really want to say before we forget um i have thanked them online but uh, we did uh, an episode of uh, dice thrower which i don't think was out the last time we did an episode but it, it's definitely out now uh, the episode that we're on dice thrower right it is yeah it's come out yeah yeah so um thanks to will for um for having us on dice thrower so go and check his podcast out to um to listen to us talk about stuff and things um in in the format that he's he's been doing that podcast so thanks very much for having us on we had we had a great blast with that so thanks will yeah it's really good and it's features a lot of people who we consider either friends or in, uh, inspirations or both um so it's just a kind of uh, wider taste of of some of the some of the things that have gone into the creation of hef i think um yeah. you know he had our friends from the dungeon punks on i know he's also got some guests in the future who i won't spoil but we, some of our friends are going on there in the future as well so there's it's a definite um touchstone uh, and you know people asked people ask about us personally so if there's anything that we we don't cover here that you're interested in um i'm sure you won't be covered there either but <laughs> <laughs> so true uh yeah it's a it's a it's it's a different style um and will's great and he, he runs a good show over there so do go and check out dice thrower definitely yeah it was just it was nice to go and do something different and i, I just wanted to uh, publicly thank him for his time for that so it was nice to be invited as always guys thank you for listening very much and we'll see you again soon stay safe Stay hydrated.